Section 4 of Letters of Jonathan Oldstyle, Gentleman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Letters of Jonathan Oldstyle, Gentleman, by Washington Irving. Letter 4. Sir. I shall now conclude my remarks on the theatre, which I am afraid you will think are spun out to an unreasonable length. For this I can give no other excuse than that it is the privilege of old folks to be tiresome, and so I shall proceed. I had chosen a seat in the pit as least subject to annoyance from a habit of talking loud that has lately crept into our theatres, and which particularly prevails in the boxes. In old times, people went to the theatre for the sake of the play and acting. But I now find that it begins to answer the purpose of a coffee-house or fashionable lounge, where many indulge in loud conversation without any regard to the pain it inflicts on their more attentive neighbours. As this conversation is generally of the most trifling kind, it seldom repays the latter for the inconvenience they suffer of not hearing one half of the play. I found, however, that I had not much bettered my situation, but that every part of the house has its share of evils. Besides those I had already suffered, I was yet to undergo a new kind of torment I had got in the neighborhood of a very obliging personage who had seen the play before, and was kindly anticipating every scene, and informing those that were about him what was to take place to prevent, I suppose, any disagreeable surprise to which they would otherwise have been liable. Had there been anything of a plot to the play, this might have been a serious inconvenience, but as the piece was entirely innocent of everything of the kind, it was not of so much importance. As I generally contrive to extract amusement from everything that happens, I now entertain myself with remarks on the self-important air with which he delivered his information, and the distressed and impatient looks of his unwilling auditors. I also observed that he made several mistakes in the course of his communications. Now you'll see, said he, the queen in all her glory, surrounded with her courtiers, fine as fiddles and ranged on each side of the stage, like rows of pewter dishes. On the contrary, we were presented with the portly gentleman and his ragged regiment of banditti, Another time he promised us a regal from the fool. But we were presented with a very fine speech from the Queen's grinning counsellor. My country neighbour was exceedingly delighted with the performance, though he did not half the time understand what was going forward. He sat staring with open mouth at the portly gentleman as he strode across the stage and in furious rage drew his sword on the white lion. "'By George, but that's a brave fellow!' said he, when the act was over. That's what you call first-rate acting, I suppose. Yes, said I, it is what the critics of the present day admire, but it is not altogether what I like. You should have seen an actor of the old school do this part. He would have given it to some purpose. You would have had such ranting and roaring and stamping and storming. To be sure, this honest man gives us a bounce now and then in the true old style but in the main he seems to prefer walking on plain ground to strutting on the stills used by the tragic heroes of my day. 
This is the chief of what passed between me and my companion during the play and entertainment, except an observation of his, that it would be well if the manager was to drill his nobility and gentry now and then, to enable them to go through their evolutions with more grace and spirit. This put me in mind of something my cousin Jack said to the same purpose, though he went too far in his zeal for reformation. He declared he wished sincerely one of the critics of the day would take all the slab-shaws of the theatre, like cats in a bag, and twig the whole bunch. I can't say but I like Jack's idea well enough, though it is rather a severe one. He might have remarked another fault that prevails among our performers, though I don't know whether it occurred this evening, of dressing for the same piece in the fashions of different ages and countries, so that while one actor is strutting about the stage in the cuirass and helmet of Alexander, another, dressed up in a gold-laced coat and bag-wig, with a chapeau de bois under his arm, is taking snuff in the fashion of one or two centuries back, and perhaps a third figures in suaro boots, in the true style of modern buckism. But what, pray, has become of the noble Marquis of Montague and Earl of Warwick? said the countryman after the entertainment was concluded their names make a great appearance on the bill but i do not recollect having seen them in the course of the evening very true i had quite forgot those worthy personages but i suspect they have been behind the scenes smoking a pipe with our other friends incognito the tripolitans we must not be particular nowadays my friend when we are presented with a battle of Hexham without fighting, and a Tripolitan afterpiece without even a Mahometan whisker, we need not be surprised at having an invisible marquis or two thrown into the bargain. "'But what is your opinion of the house?' said I. "'Don't you think it a very substantial, solid-looking building, both inside and out? Observe what a fine effect the dark colouring of the wall has upon the white faces of the audience, which glare like the stars in a dark night. And then what can be more pretty than the paintings in the front of the boxes, those little masters and misses sucking their thumbs and making mouths at the audience? Very fine, upon my word. And what, pray, is the use of that chandelier, as you call it, that is hung up among the clouds, and has showered down its favours upon my coat. Oh, that is to illumine the heavens, and set off to advantage the little periwigged cupids, tumbling head over heels with which the painter has decorated the dome. You see, we have no need of the chandelier below, as here the house is perfectly well illuminated. But I think it would have been a great saving of candlelight if the manager had ordered the painter, among his other pretty designs, to paint a moon up there, or if he was to hang up that sun with whose intense light our eyes were greatly annoyed in the beginning of the afterpiece. But don't you think, after all, there was rather a sort of a kind of a heavyishness about the house? Don't you think it has a little of an undergroundish appearance? To this I could make no answer. I must confess I have often thought myself the house had a dungeon-like look. So I proposed to him to make our exit, as the candles were putting out, and we should be left in the dark. Accordingly, groping our way through the dismal subterraneous passage that leads from the pit, and passing through the ragged bridewell-looking antechamber, we once more emerged into the purer air of the park, when, bidding my honest countrymen good-night, I repaired home, 
considerably pleased with the amusements of the evening. Thus, Mr. Editor, have I given you an account of the chief incidents that occurred in my visit to the theatre. I have shown you a few of its accommodations and its imperfections. Those who visit it more frequently may be able to give you a better statement. I shall conclude with a few words of advice for the benefit of every department of it. I would recommend, to the actors, less etiquette, less fustian, less buckram. To the orchestra, new music and more of it. To the pit, patience, clean benches and umbrellas. To the boxes, less affectation, less noise, less coxcombs. To the gallery, less grog and better constables. And to the whole house, inside and out, a total reformation. And so much for the theatre. Jonathan Oldstyle End of Letter 4 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista